Welcome back to the 81st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, discussing the idea of a peaceful divorce, solutions, is it probable, and the way that we deal with the current division. In the last article, we'll talk about the rewriting of some children's books that has caught the attention of many. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. The phrases civil war, peaceful divorce, and secession have been becoming more used over the past couple of years. To some, it's frightening, and to others, it's an exciting proposition. But no matter who you are or how you are reacting to this, there is an obvious want, uh, maybe even a need, you could say, for people to break apart and really distance themselves from the quote-unquote other side. In, in my opinion, this is, this is not healthy. What does it say about us when we are so afraid to compromise? We're so afraid to listen to the other side. And would we seriously consider a peaceful divorce over working with one another? Is that the solution? And, you know, I obviously have some opinions on this, and you can tell what mine are, but I want to hear yours. Throw them down in the comment section. Is this the right move, or is it just bluster? Or... Is it something that we don't necessarily want, you don't want, but maybe you see their validity to it? I think there are lots of angles from which you can definitely approach this conversation. And we're going to talk about one from our first article. This one comes from Daily Beast. National divorce is more popular than you think. So Marjorie Taylor Greene really stoked some hatred on Twitter last week, suggesting America needs a peaceful divorce. Quote, we want to separate by red states and blue states states, and shrink the federal government. She continued, everyone I talk to says this, from the sick and disgusting woke, end quote. Well, if you're at all familiar with Green, you can probably guess where she ends up going. And you also won't be surprised to learn she returned to the theme a few hours later on her congressional account, issuing an ultimatum, impeach President Joe Biden or permit the split, end quote. And I would argue, I would agree with the argument that having a smaller federal government would actually ease some of the tensions, but... You know, that's about it. I don't necessarily agree with the rest of what she's saying. And you really have to step back and ask. So even if you really wanted a peaceful divorce, where do you begin? It is not like the Civil War before, and I'm not saying that it would have to be violent. But when you look at the Civil War, there were very clearly drawn lines. There was the South and the North. And you could very easily split up the country based on those two different geographic designations. And now that's not the case anymore. You have Florida, Texas, Alabama, who are pretty, pretty deep red. Georgia, who's a f state that flips back and forth. Louisiana can flip back and forth as well. I mean, it would be obvious that the West Coast would be fine. Oregon, Washington, 
California, they could form their own little block and maybe take Arizona or New Mexico along with them if they decided to go that way. But even then, it, you have Illinois in the middle of the Midwest. So there's lots of differing opinions in all these different states, and they're not always blue and they're not always red. So how can you even say have a solid footing when you say, oh, we need to split the red states with the blue states? What about Virginia? Virginia is a purple state. Is Virginia going to join a union with D.C. and Maryland? What about West Virginia? Are they going to leave them out? They have some similarities as well. So this is a really tricky situation, and I think it's untenable. And that's one reason among many that I don't necessarily think we should genuinely consider this. And I know Marjorie Taylor Greene's just trying to get the clicks, and I know this author is doing the same by talking about it. But there are people who have genuinely proposed this, and they really do want to follow through on it. And, you know, this comment from Green, there are the people that oppose it. There are many public commenters who were outraged at her statement. Quote, Rep. Robert Garcia, Democrat of California, called Green a traitor. A write-up at the New Republic branded her initial post borderline sedition. And Rachel Maddow show producer Steve Bennon castigated America for not being more offended. Former Rep. Liz Cheney accused Green of violating her oath of office, and Utah Governor Spencer Cox labeled the proposal evil. End quote. And, you know, the author doesn't... They highlight these comments, but then they really they push back a little bit, and they're trying to strengthen this idea that, at the end of the day, there are some Americans... Uh, a good chunk of Americans who do agree with this idea. And you can't, when she lists off these statistics, you can't necessarily argue with her. It's something that has made it into the public sphere. A lot of people have been thinking about this. And if you were to pose the question to them in the way that either we have a civil war or we have a peaceful divorce, they're going to say peaceful divorce. If you said that to me, as a person who doesn't necessarily want a peaceful divorce, I would still say I would take the peaceful divorce. If there's no other solution, yes, a peaceful divorce is the way to go about it. And I'll, I'll read you the quote where she highlights how this breaks down among different groups. Quote, a national split, or if you prefer, secession, is a hot topic on the populist right. Two-thirds of Southern Republicans are ready for regional secession. One 2021 survey found. Another later that year had 52% of voters uh, from former President Donald Trump ready for red or blue states to depart and, quote, form their own separate country. Four in ten Republicans per a 2022 poll believe their state would do the same or better if it struck out solo. And the Republican Party of Texas last year called for a state referendum on whether or not the state of Texas should assert its status as an independent nation to its platform, end quote. You know, and of course, Texas, of course, Texas wants this. They've wanted their independence for generations. And honestly, they probably wouldn't take on any other states, too. They would just say, nope, we are the nation of Texas. And honestly, I think they could get away with it. I would I would very much enjoy saying that, yes, I visited Texas while it was a state, but now I'm visiting a different country because Texas really is its own place. If you're outside the cities, it really is its own place. And even some of the cities are wild and it's fun 
And it's a fun thing to think about. And, of course, I laugh and say, of course the Texans would want this. But it is a, a serious thought that they've had for a long time. So the fact that this is made onto the national stage, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised with how divisive things have gotten. And I, I really want to take a step back. And this is really highlighting a lot of Republicans who, or populist Republicans who want a peaceful divorce. But I want to ask any Republican out there, even the Democrats who may be in favor of this, if you're a progressive or a nationalist, I don't care what you are, but do you at least understand the problem with this idea of having states become different nations? Look at what we're doing with China right now. We are in a trade war with China. And if we are already so divided that certain states don't like each other anyway, what would stop California from having an import tariff on Texas uh, uh, aluminum or aluminum? Sorry, I went a little British there for a second. Or what would stop Texas from having an import tax or tariff on California's fruits and vegetables? What allows the interstate trade to be so efficient is the fact that we have a federal regulating body that at the end of the day says, no, that's not a fair practice. That is hindering trade between the states, interstate commerce. And while I don't necessarily agree that we want a very powerful federal government, there are certain protections that allow the unions of the states and trade between them to be facilitated in an easy manner and that allow for us to pool our resources to have a larger effect economically on the world stage. And that is a huge factor that we are not considering, or at least the conversation is not being taken quite seriously enough to actually start thinking about these sort of things. And that's just one thing I want to bring up, because if you are okay with a peaceful divorce, good for you. And I'm sure you have your reasons, and there are lots of good ones, but you also have to weigh the benefits. And it's ironic that I'm talking about the economic benefits and costs when that's the whole point of economics, you are weighing the costs and benefits of decisions and making sure that they produce the most efficient decisions. So just keep that in mind if you're a person who, you know, hears this argument and it really appeals to them. And it really does highlight how untenable it is. And that's all I really want to get across there. I'm sorry if I sounded a little bit preachy. It's just because I have strong opinions on this one and also we did just have a discussion about federalism in my economics class, so it's fresh on the brain. Uh, we'll read a quote from the article. Quote, As Roosevelt University political scientist Dave Ferris, former, my former colleague at The Week, observed, if fantasizing about national divorce is sedition, a lot of people might want to go back and check their tweets during the week of November 8, 2016. And I'll stop with the quote here really quickly. And this was talking about some of the media pundits who are from the left saying, this is outrageous, how dare you, Marjorie Taylor Greene. And then he brings up a few different examples. Quote, hashtag CalExit trended on Twitter after Trump was first elected. And progressive Californians weren't the only Democrats eyeing the door. In early 2017, the New Republic pu- published a Blexit proposal. Quote, dear red state Trump voter, it began. Let's face it, guys, we're done. It's time for blue states and cities to effectively abandon the American national experience as the current as it is currently constituted. Call in the new federalism or virtual succession, end quote. So 
they mentioned federalism here, and I, I think it's interesting. And we just, like I said, I just had a discussion about this in class. So Marjorie Taylor Greene said in her original thing, hey, let's have a smaller government and break up the states. But what if we had a smaller federal government that is imposing less top-down mandates that affect both people who believe in one ideology or another? What if the federal government had less power to impose its will? It still allowed for the regulation of interstate commerce. It still allows for a judicial system where certain things, rights and freedoms can be addressed. Bills can still be taken to the Supreme Court. We still have an executive who can act during wartime. What if these things are still allowed, but the government itself, the bureaucracy is a little bit smaller. We kind of limit their powers, and I know it's a lot easier said than done. Now, I'm honestly proposing something that's just as tricky as a national divorce, but would that work for people? Where, in that case, the states can govern how, govern how they want, they can be blue states, they can be red states, and the federal government just ensures that people can move around between those states and choose where they want to live. They can choose what type of governance they want. Now, the people in the red states or even blue states would probably say, well, you know, Ohio hasn't been doing so hot recently, and they're, they're a red state, and since we have a federal system, some of our tax dollars are going to help Ohio, and we really don't want that. So I understand that's one aspect of the issue, but the efficiencies gained, in my opinion, from allowing easier trading between states without trade wars breaking out or little tit-for-tats breaking out actually are made up for even if California is paying a little bit of extra taxes to help Ohio or if Texas is paying a little bit of extra taxes to help Oregon. But, you know, I could definitely see that counter argument. I could see that comment coming, honestly, and that's why I wanted to address it because I think it is a fair point that has been brought up that the bigger states, whenever they give their tax revenue to the federal government, are actually aiding the smaller states. And that's why a lot of people have said yeah, peaceful divorce is a, a good option because now each state is liable for themselves and they have to be fish, fiscally responsible in order to make it by rather than relying on the federal government to come in and just give them funding. But, you know, that's enough peaceful divorce talk. I, I went on a longer rant than I thought I would on this one. So that was talking about the divisiveness, one, of, one or two solutions for me, but overall talking about how there is a trend between either side of the aisle that says, hey, we might want a peaceful divorce. Now I'm going to bring it back to a Wall Street Journal article with the title, Reagan Revolution Was Built on Compromise. And the reason I highlight this one is because I think it speaks not only, it gives a very good story about how this one gentleman was able to compromise and get things done during the Reagan Revolution, but it also speaks to the fact that in America, we have a hard time nowadays saying, no, 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 I'm not going to get what I want. I'm going to give up something in order to get this bill passed. Everybody says, I want to get what I want to get, and I'm not going to compromise. And I think that's a key issue that really plays into this divisiveness. So let's jump into the article. Quote, Republican House members can learn from the excess, uh, success of the Reagan era. As one of the authors of its success, I offer some Dutch uncle advice. The road to 
adopting the Reagan program and changing America was paved with bitter compromises. If protection is what you're after, then running for Congress was the wrong decision. I never wrote or voted for any major legislation that didn't contain something I opposed. If you can't compromise, you can't legislate or govern, end quote. And, you know, this article is leveled at Republicans, especially when it comes to the debt ceiling issue right now. But this is not just Republicans. It's not just populist Republicans. It's not just liberals. It's progressives as well. People on the far right, far left. People in the middle, the libertarians that are really sticking to their values. We have this idea that in order to best serve our populace, or at least the people in Congress, they have the idea that in order to best serve the populace that they are voted in for, they have to get exactly what they want. Now, of course, this is not always true. There are plenty of Democrats and Republicans for years upon years who have been willing to compromise their values in order to get something passed. But this new wave of more populist, but even some rhino-style Republicans and Democrats, they're not willing to come to the negotiating table and actually compromise. I did see a little bit of hope when you saw some of the Freedom Caucus Republicans compromising with McCarthy. They didn't get everything they wanted, but they got a lot of what they wanted. But at the end of the day, we need to realize, the politicians need to realize, you can't be locked into your belief. You can't be locked into these predetermined categories and say, oh, well, my whole party is voting for this bill. My whole party is saying that this is not okay and we're not going to vote for it. No, you need to think for your own. You need to say, well, this one piece of the legislation, I don't, I oppose it. It's not actually going to help my jurisdiction. But this other piece that I've really been vying for, if I, if I compromise a little bit on the other one, then I can get this one passed and it will help my voters just a little bit. So this idea of compromise needs to be brought back in to the American political system, in my opinion. And we'll get to the part where I also think it needs to be a social aspect. It's not just political. It is something that we need to incorporate back into the social sphere as well. But I'll, I'll get to that one. Quote, during my first year in the Senate, that cure conviction was tested when I put my political future in jeopardy by killing an amendment to oppose, impose an oil import fee and had to spend nine long months defending that vote all over Texas. Earlier, during debate on the 1981 Reagan Budget Reconciliation Bill, Democratic then-rep John Brooks came to me with an offer. He and his Louisiana colleagues would vote with us on all amendments and on the final passage in exchange for our commitment not to try to kill the sugar program. Reagan asked me what I thought we should do. In a rush of emotions, my college professor idealism embarrassingly brought tears to my eyes as I explained that I didn't come to Congress to save the sugar program. But I advised the president to take the deal and commit to leaving the sugar program alone. Reagan sighed and said, I guess this is what we call kissing the pigs. We kissed a passel of pigs in ending the inflation, rebuilding the economy, and winning the Cold War. It was worth it. End quote. So you you have to do things that you're unpleasant with. That's what kissing the pig is. You don't want to kiss that pig. It, it's got some s- weird snarls going on. It's making some weird noises. Its nose is doing some freaky stuff. It's been in some weird places. 
but you got to kiss the pig sometimes. You got to compromise. You got to make sure that at the end of the day, you are willing to move a little bit. And both parties have really complained of the current gridlock. And part of the current gridlock is they're not willing to compromise. They're not willing to move. And that was the whole point of our system built as it was, where the minority states would have a outsized representation compared to their population so that the big states couldn't just bully them and the big states had to compromise and they had to make sure that the small states were getting some of the regulations, some of the bills, laws passed that they needed. So our system is really built to force the congressmen and women to sit back and say, okay, what can I give up that will still not hurt my constituents? And what can I give to the other person that's not going to hurt my constituents? And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if I'm a Republican or a Democrat, because then again, those parties didn't exist back then. It's what can I do for my constituents? And it's this whole battle of I'm in a category. I have to stick strong to this category. If all Republicans are voting on this, I'm voting on this. If all the Democrats, all the progressives are voting on this, I have to vote on this. These categories really restrict us from saying, no, 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 I have to step back. I really have to evaluate what is going to be best for my constituents, not my reelection campaign, not making sure that the donor money comes in from my party, but making sure that I can serve my constituents while I'm here. And hopefully, if you can serve your constituents, then that PAC money that would be coming from either party would not necessarily be as necessary because your constituents are happy with what you're doing for them and they want to get you back into office. That is the idealistic world. That's not exactly how it works in Washington. But I'm hopeful that we could return to that. There are lots of populist, whether they're progressive, a little bit more to the right. There are lots of populist candidates who they're still a little hard line. They're not necessarily willing to compromise. And that's because they have a strong conviction in order to change the standards as they are. But with time, once more of those populist candidates get in and they don't have to be as bullish in order to be heard, but they're rather a voting block rather than just an impediment to the mainstream rhinos that sit there and just come back year after year after year. At that point, they can be more concerned about the constituents and what's actually good for the people rather than just being a stick in the mud and trying to get a few, let's just say, more off-the-beaten-track laws, bills, regulations implemented. But I think there's hope. I, at the end of the day, I think that if we change this on a cultural level, if we start saying, yes, okay, I can be wrong, a lot of our generation, Gen Z, we have this obsession with looking up information, which is a great thing. You want to be informed. But very often we find a information that is biased or that confirms our bias. And then since we took the time to research, but we only found information that confirms our bias, we believe we're well informed. And this very often leads us to really be stubborn about the information that we absorb and the positions that we take because no no I did the I did the work I was able to google it and find all these articles supporting my thesis I'm not wrong whereas even if you aren't wrong that doesn't mean you can't compromise especially when it comes to legislation 
So this idea that you can be wrong, that we need to be a little bit more humble societally, could lead in the future to more politicians getting in who are willing to compromise and try something that will help more people, even if all those people aren't necessarily in their jurisdiction. That's just my opinion. That's me being hopeful, me being positive. And I, I like the tone of this one because normally some of the stories that I read are a little bit more negative. This one's a little bit more positive vision. All right, let's jump to our last story, and which is it's sad that I was just talking about a positive vision because now we're going back to a story that's not necessarily as positive. This one comes from The Daily Signal. Welcome to modern book burning. I know, a very sensational headline, right? But you may have heard the very concerning story over the last two weeks. Quote, according to the Daily Telegraph, new editions of the children's book by the late British author Ronald Dahl, who authored classics such as Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, are being edited by the publisher to remove offensive words and concepts. You see, in progressive modernity, we don't burn books. No, that's too crass. It's too simplistic. Instead, our inclusion ambassadors comb through old cherished texts to alter and remove wrong think before publication. The post wouldn't just be erased, but rather it will be rewritten. The changes to Dahl's works made with aid of an organization called Inclusive Minds. Reportedly, they have been approved by the Dahl Story Company and the publisher Puffin Books. So get your physical copies now while you can, end quote. And while this author is definitely being cutesy and they're definitely saying, oh, well, this is what happens with progressive modernity, what I think is more important is we need to ask the question, where does this end? Once one side starts doing it, what happens if a nationalist party gets control of the government or they get some influence in one of these publishing companies and then all of a sudden they're changing some of the great works of Karl Marx or even works that you may not necessarily agree with, but what if they went in and changed white fragility or some of Martin Luther King's writing, Malcolm X writings, Ibram X. Kennedy, modern writings, what if they changed that? So we really have to take a step back and say, do we want this practice to continue? I don't care what your left, right, center, in the freaking sky. I don't care. Do you want this practice happening? And if you do, then evaluate, okay, yeah, I, I want some of this offensive language out. Then remember that other people consider other things offensive. And next thing you know, they're getting rid of different language about equity, equality, so on and so forth. So if you start this practice now, where does it end? And I know it's a slippery slope fallacy, but it's not me saying it will happen. It's a question of where does it stop? And are you willing, if it would go that far, to let it happen? And if you are, then great. You are ideologically or logically consistent. But if you're not willing to let that happen, if another party gets in and changes the book, and you're not willing to let that happen, but you're okay with it because it aligns with your ideology, you need to take a step back and really reevaluate and say, is this actually a good thing? Do I actually believe in this? Or is it just because it aligns with my current thinking on the issue? And I'm not, like I said before, I'm not trying to rant to you. I am not perfect on this. Of course, I fall into the exact same trap that everybody else does. But it's a serious concern when this sort of thing happens and you see people coming out and supporting it. And it, it really doesn't give me joy to be here and rant about this. It, it makes me sad, if I'm being honest. 
in some of the changes, in my opinion, just don't make sense. Quote, gendered words will be stripped down from Dahl's original text. Words such as father and mother might lead one to think that there is a gender binary. How awful. Oompa Loompas no longer will be called small men. They are called small people. Augustus Gloop, Charlie's gluttonous antagonist in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which originally was published in 1964, is no longer enormously fat, just enormous. The Associated Press reported the new edition of The Witches, a supernatural female posing as an ordinary woman, may be working as a top secret or top scientist or running a business instead of as a cashier in a supermarket or writing letters for a businessman, end quote. So why I think this is a little weird is because, what, are we supposed to no longer say Grandpa Joe, one of the key characters of Charlie of the Chocolate Factory, is just going to be Grandparent Joe? I mean, I guess that works, but it feels weird as someone who read Charlie of the Chocolate Factory and always loved Grandpa Joe. And there are four grandparents, so they're going to have to specify their name every single time rather than just saying Grandpa. I, I don't know how it's necessarily going to work out, but it feels a little weird to me. And also, what is he supposed to say when he's in the factory? Grandpa, what do you think? No, no, no. It's just going to be grandparent. What do you think? That just feels so peculiar to me. And also, the interesting thing about taking out the version of what job the women would have is top scientist is the modern version or a supermarket cashier is the other one. Well, my question is, at the time of writing that book, were those common trades for women? And yes, I do understand, well, we want women to read this and not necessarily feel like they have to do these jobs, but this is a historical record. Even if you don't see it that way, it's an insight to what the times were like when this was being written. And you can use stories like this to chart the evolution of society. But if you try to bring those old books up to modern society standards, it falsifies the past. It says, oh yeah, no, they were talking about women's rights, top scientists in the 1960s. No, they weren't. A lot of women were not treated that way. And we need to remember that that's the case so that we remember where we came from and how we've improved. And I'm running a little little tight on time, so I'll just jump to the part that I find very, very disturbing. And I feel like I could talk on, not disturbing, I feel that it is very terrible messaging and i feel like i can talk on on a personal level quote gloop story which involves his greed gluttony leading to self-destruction now makes no sense the idea that individual actions can lead to poor outcomes is a hateful concept nowadays that's fat shaming the answer to gloop's morbid obesity and lack of self-control is our modern moralist it lies in individual expression and liberation rather than changing in behave, his behavior, end quote. And I know I muddled through that, but why I am enraged about this, or at least a little bit frustrated, is because at the end of the day, being a person who is overweight, unless you have a thyroid issue, is a choice. And I'm sorry if you're listening and you absolutely hate that. Actually, I take that back. I'm not sorry. If you're listening and you hate that statement, Evaluate why. I will tell you now, I was a 300-pound man. I lost 100 pounds the first time I tried my weight loss journey. I gained 60 back, went up to 260, and I've been on a progress ever since, and now I'm down 
at 165. Well, I guess actually when I hopped on this morning, I was 166 point something, so I guess I lied. I'm sorry. But what I'm getting at is that the choice to better your life is only one that you can make. And normally, unless you have a thyroid issue, being fat is a choice. It is this need for food to comfort you. It's a need for oral stimuli. Maybe you had some sort of trauma in the past that made you very reliant on food. But at the end of the day, you still choose to put that food in your mouth. You choose to not have willpower. You choose to not change your life and work out. And it really speaks to me when we are trying to erase this idea that being fat is not good for you. It may be fat shaming. Some people may call it fat shaming. Fine. You don't want to be overly mean to people just because they're fat. But you do want to highlight to them that they can make better choices. And at the end of the day, it is your willpower and it is your life. And if you want to live a long, happy one, maybe you should consider not being overweight. Maybe you should put yourself first, actually value yourself and make a healthy decision. And all it takes is one day at a time. You build a healthy habit one day at a time. Once you reach one month, then from that point on, it is no longer you actively trying, but it has become a subconscious program. And then sometimes you'll stumble. Sometimes you'll fall. Sometimes you'll break that subconscious program. But don't, don't give up. It's not the end of the world. Like I talked about, I had setbacks. Everybody has setbacks. You get back up on the horse and you keep on trying. And I promise you, if you're a person who is drastically overweight and you lose some of that weight, you will feel 10 times better. That's just my experience. And I think that erasing this kind of language doesn't serve anybody. And that's why this sort of thing really scared me when I got a little bit further into this article. But I'll leave on a happy note. You can change your life. You can have direct effect on what happens to you. You can't control everything, but you can control a lot of what goes on in your life. And you can have a positive change on your life if you want to. And of course, with that positive note, we're going to jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Wide Open Spaces. Fawn runs up to Hunter, freezes when he realizes he's a person. So have you ever misrecognized someone or tried to get their attention? Well, this story shows it's not just a human thing. Quote, the beginning of the video shows a little fawn running straight for Linstead, which he captioned, I think we were both a little confused. The little deer ran so fast that he was almost as if he thought the hunter was a friend until he got up close, end quote. And, you know, there's that moment when you realize it's not the person who you thought it was. And normally you say sorry or you kind of act like you weren't actually talking to them or you're talking to somebody else behind them. But this little guy took a very different approach. Quote, the deer hit the brakes as the realization sank in. It had just run up to a human. It freezes mid-stride, leaving one hoof up in the air. The funniest part is that it keeps moving its head as the camera moves around it, but the rest of its body is frozen. The poor little guy tried to blend into the backdrop as best as possible. 
And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos from this article or read any of the articles from today's podcast, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can go in, read them. Also, there's the link to Twitter down there at your daily flip. And there's also links where you can go to the podcast on podcasts, sorry, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and you can download it for any long drive you got. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.